Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study, episode 11. I'm Rebecca Deschwainitz, a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, and I'll be conducting today's session from my home in Provo, Utah. Michael Austin and Christian Kimball from our board will be helping with tech and some other details from time. Today, we're thrilled to have as our teacher, Prince, to help us consider Alma chapters 8 through 12. He's joining us today from St. George, Utah. We're grateful, at least on Sundays, for the technology that brings us together. As most of you know, this webinar format doesn't allow you to see each other, but it does facilitate some conversation on chat. Please comment and ask questions respectfully and in ways that are keeping with our teacher's message and focus today. We do anticipate having some sort of discussion along the way, and we'll do our best to draw from what we see on chat, so Christian will be helping with that. Welcome to those who are joining us on Facebook Live, and know that if it gets disconnected, we'll just, we'll try to get that restarted as soon as possible. Our teacher today, Greg Prince, is the author of a number of award-winning books and articles, most recently, Gay Rights and the Mormon Church. He is president of Soft Cell Biological Research, a St. George, Utah biotech company that focused on combating antibiotic resistant superbugs that have become one of the gravest threats to global health. Before that, he spent four decades in virus research, co-founding um, Viren Systems Incorporated and pioneering the standard of care for preventing RSV pneumonia in high-risk infants. In 2008, his wife, Jalen, uh, and he founded Madison House Autism Foundation, which they named after their adult autistic son. Uh, and this organization, which he was explaining a little bit for those of you who are on early, um, addressed the lifespan issues facing autistic adults, their families, and other caregivers. He is on National Advisory Councils of the Utah University of Utah School of Dentistry and his alma mater. Dixie State University and as Governor Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, DC. He has published over 150 scientific papers and four books and several dozen articles in the field of Mormon studies, some of which have appeared in Dialogue. He also served for many years on the Dialogue Foundation Board. As with any Latter-day Saint gospel study class, the views expressed today are the teacher's own and do not necessarily the, re reflect those of Dialogue, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. We're grateful for his preparation today and appreciate the, uh, the voice that he's been in and thinking and talking about all sorts of important and diverse issues in the field of Mormon studies. Before Greg begins, and to help open our minds and hearts, please enjoy our opening musical selection, Oh Say What Is Truth, performed by the Tabernacle at Temple Square. Our opening prayer will then be offered by Dr. Claudia Bushman. And uh, it's difficult to quickly capture a little of who Cl Claudia is and what she has meant to dialogue and to the field of Mormon studies to Mormon women's history in particular, and to Mormon feminism. For those of you who don't know, I'll just say she has a PhD from Boston University, is an Emerita Professor of American Studies at Columbia, creator of Claremont's Mormon Women's Oral History Project, uh, is a founder of Exponent 2 and its first editor, and a longtime contributor to Dialogue, starting with 
uh, our pink issue back in the early 70s, and most recently her essay, Women in Dialogue, was published in our amazing spring 2020 issue. That's what's happening. We'll have music, prayer, and then on to grace. Our Father in heaven, we come before thee this day, gathered as a group for a Sunday school lesson. We are grateful that we can come together in these difficult times, and we pray that thy spirit will be with our leader and with us. We're grateful to be engaged with people who observe, describe, and record important matters relating to our spiritual lives. We pray that in our endeavors to learn about and understand the important matters of our lives, that we will be honest, insightful, and accurate, moving toward greater knowledge and understanding of thee and thy ways. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Claudia, and thank you, the choir formerly known as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I asked for that song for two reasons. One is that when President McKay died, the brethren went to his secretary and asked what his favorite hymn was. That was it. But also, the very concept of truth is under broad assault in this country. And I think we need to be aware of what truth is and the price that's necessary to pay to maintain truth. I'm in St. George because of a scientific truth. I've spent almost 50 years in respiratory virus research and now head a company in St. George that has pivoted in order to do testing for coronavirus. Uh, the truth is this is a very nasty virus and a lot of the country is in denial about that, including the state of Utah. If you look at the daily reports from the health department, you'll see that the majority of the states in the country now are experiencing an increase in daily uh, numbers of diagnosed cases of COVID-19. So my caution, my plea with you is to take protective steps uh, I did bring two props with me. Wear a mask, some like the over-the-ear look, which is this. If you want to go all out, you can borrow from history. This is what they wore in the Dark Ages to try to prevent the Black Death. So pick a mask of your choice, but wear it when you're out in public. Now, I'd like to begin with a bit of a disclaimer uh, to let you know where I stand on the Book of Mormon. What it is often gets in the way of what it does. I have talked to a lot of people over the decades, many of them converts whose conversion was based upon their reading of the Book of Mormon. And if I ask three questions, I can almost guess what the response will be to the first two. Question number one, did you read it from beginning to end? Well, no, because it's a pretty long book and it's kind of boring. Question number two, what do you remember of what you read? Well, not a lot, but there certainly were a lot of wars in it and the phrase, and it came to pass, seems to be quite prevalent. But question number three, I can never guess the exact answer, but I know what the tone of it will be. That question is, what was your experience in encountering the book? And those responses generally will take the form of, it changed my life. I think that's what we have to keep in mind because 
current discussions around the Book of Mormon often zero in on the wrong question, which may be the question of historicity. That tends to deflect the attention from what the real value of the book is. Now, that said, my own view of the book was really encapsulated by a statement made several years ago by a friend who is a professor of Hebrew Bible at Wesley Seminary in Washington, D.C. She agreed to teach our study group one Sunday night a month for a whole year on the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. In preparing for it, she asked to read some Mormon materials. I gave her the Book of Mormon. She read it, and she said, this is authentic American canon. But she said, it's also a book-length midrash on the King James Bible. And I've not heard a definition that I felt so succinctly captured what I think the book is. In other words, that it is an inspired 19th century book. The theology that's within the Book of Mormon, which really is the crux of what we'll talk about today, I view as Joseph Smith 1.0. It was his starting point theologically, his takeoff point for some rather amazing theology that went in different unpredictable directions thereafter. But that starting point was raw, it was naive, it was authentic, it was inspired, and sometimes off-putting. And in the off-putting category, there is one major theme within the book that should be reviewed and revised in the context of current affairs within the United States. In the era of Black Lives Matter, the overt racism that really pervades the Book of Mormon cries out to be fixed. Uh, that's not the topic of my discussion today, but it helps, I think, for you to see where I'm coming from as I look at the entire book that there are things in it that we can learn a lot from. There are things in it that perhaps we need to fix. Now, in examining Alma 8 through 12, I'm going to zero in on what is a core theme of the entire book, and yet it doesn't match the human experience, and as such, it becomes problematic. It's what I call the formulaic gospel. Let me jump right to the ninth chapter of Alma, beginning in the 12th verse. Behold, now I say unto you that he commandeth you to repent, and except you repent, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. So far, so good. But behold, this is not all. He has commanded you to repent, or he will utterly destroy you from off the face of the earth. That doesn't sound like symbolism there. That sounds like literalism. Verse 13, Behold, do you not remember the words which he spake unto Lehi, saying that, Inasmuch as, she shall, as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And again, it is said that inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. The, this idea of if you are righteous, you will prosper, and if you are unrighteous, you will suffer, is a dominant theme within the Book of Mormon from beginning to end. I'll deflect a bit to the book of Jerem in the 10th verse. It says, and it came to pass that the prophets of the Lord did threaten the people of Nephi according to the word of God, that if they did not keep the commandments, but should fall into transgression, they should be destroyed from off the face of the land. Now going back to the ninth chapter of Alma, verse 14, 
Now I would that you should remember that inasmuch as the Lamanites have not kept the commandments of God, they have been cut off from the presence of the Lord. Now we see that the word of the Lord has been verified in this thing, and the Lamanites have been cut off from his presence from the beginning of their transgressions in the land. Jumping to verse 18, but behold, I say unto you that if ye persist in your wickedness, that your days shall not be prolonged in the land. For the Lamanites shall be sent upon you, and if ye repent not, they shall come in a time when ye know not, and ye shall be visited with utter destruction, and it shall be according to the fierce anger of the Lord. Verse 24, for behold, the promises of the Lord are extended to the Lamanites, but they are not unto you if ye transgress. For has not the Lord expressly promised and firmly decreed that if ye will rebel against him, that ye shall be utterly destroyed from off the face of the earth? Now that phrase, prosper in the land, occurs 42 times in the Book of Mormon. It occurs twice in the Old Testament. It doesn't occur at all in the New Testament. That allows me to say it is a dominant theme, perhaps the dominant theme within the entire Book of Mormon. And yet it's one that if you look beneath the surface, sounds okay until it doesn't sound okay. In other words, the formulaic gospel, if I do A, I receive B, and A may be if I am righteous, then B would be I prosper, or A may be if I am wicked, B will be I will be destroyed. Uh, that works until it doesn't work. Let me give you some examples of maybe it working and maybe it not working. When I was in dental school at UCLA, uh, I also did a residency in pathology in the hospital, which was in the same building. And one day on learning that the father of a friend of mine, classmate from Sunday school, had had a major heart attack and was in the hospital, I went up to visit him. The gentleman was not a member of the church. His wife was a multi-generational member uh, and the kids were members. Uh, Andy was not antagonistic towards the church, but he just didn't care. But I walked in and he said, your father and Grant Brazier were in here a day or so ago. He said, they did something to me and I'm not sure what it was. I think they prayed over me. And what they had done was at his wife's request, they had given him blessing. And he said, whatever it was, before they did that, I thought I was going to die. And as soon as they did that, I knew I was going to live. It was a very dramatic uh, example to me of when it works, it can work really well. But it doesn't always work that way. And that's where the problems come in. When I moved to Maryland to continue my graduate work at the National Institutes of Health, I was called to be elders quorum president. And one day I had a call from a member of the quorum. He was a convert. His wife was of a multi-generational LDS family. Uh, she had had a prior marriage and had had several children and elected to have a tubal ligation because she felt that was as large a family as she wanted. When she remarried, she and her new husband decided they would like to have more children. So they were scheduled to, for her to have surgery to try to reconnect the tubes that had been ligated previously. 
their home teacher with benevolent intent went over and gave her a blessing the night before the surgery and promised that the surgery would be successful and they would be able to have children once again. The surgeons got in to the abdomen and saw that there was so much scar tissue from the previous operation that it was impossible to reverse it. Uh, and his question in calling me up was, what's going on here? That my wife received a promise ostensibly from the Lord and now that promise didn't come true. That's where you see that the formulaic gospel, which is great when it works, doesn't always work for perhaps a variety of reasons. And it would does, when it doesn't work, it can be devastating. Uh, several years ago, I made the acquaintance of Marlon Jensen. It was at a time when I was working on the David O. McKay biography. And Marlon had grown up and had remained in Huntsville, Utah, which was where David O. McKay was raised. So I had talked to him a little bit about the history there. He was in the area presidency of Washington, DC and spoke at a state conference. And as he spoke, he said, let me tell you a story that happened recently. I was at a state conference in Wyoming. And after the meeting, a woman came up, introduced herself and said, the previous general authority who came through here kindly consented to visit my husband who had cancer and to give him a blessing in our home. And he promised that my husband would be restored to health. Shortly thereafter, my husband died. Could you please explain? And I thought, wow, what a person for Marlon to be able to stand at the pulpit and even bring up this clearly embarrassing episode. And his response to what he had heard was, sometimes we get out ahead of ourselves and with the best of intention, do things that hurt rather than help. Let me give you a couple other examples from history. This was from the diaries of Abraham Cannon, who was an apostle, was also a son of George Q. Cannon, and it was his diary entry in July of 1890. He said, a sister Parkinson asked why her newborn baby died when I blessed it and promised it should live to manhood, and several weeks later it got pneumonia, and the elders promised it continued life. Um, the baby died and he said, I could not account for the failure of our promises that it should live, except that sympathy instead of the spirit of God prompted the utterances. So at least Cannon was willing to take ownership of it and take the heat from having gotten out in front of himself. In another instance, uh, the writer wasn't willing to accept responsibility. His name was Wilford Woodruff. This is from his diary in 1855, which was several decades before he became the church president, but while he was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He wrote, some are much tried because all are not healed that they lay hands upon, but I do not feel so. I had a case during conference concerning the case of Sister Barris. She was sick and I laid hands upon her and blessed her with life and health and went to meeting. In an hour, I had word that she was dead. It did not try me. The Lord saw fit to take her, and all is right. My response on reading that and upon hearing some of the blessings that I have 
heard over the years is if you're not willing to take responsibility for it, or if you are putting so many qualifiers into what you are saying, why bother doing it at all? Now, all of that said about Alma, I want to shift the emphasis to what I consider the flip side of that coin. And that is the book of Job. Because I think that book deals with the same dilemma that Alma is dealing with. And that is, what is the relationship between actions and consequences on this earth? Job comes down in an entirely different way and one that is consistent with probably the experience of all of us at some point in our lives. To set the stage, the opening verses describe a friendly conversation between God and Satan, where God says, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him upon the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now, this was too much for Satan to tolerate, and so he said, look, anyone can look God-fearing when times are good, but what if things head south? What good are bragging rights if the context, contest has been rigged? After all, said Satan, quote, hast thou not put a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. And that view would have been consistent with Alma and that pervasive theme within the Book of Mormon. If you're righteous, you're going to prosper. It's what in recent years has been called the gospel of prosperity, with Joel Osteen being one of its principal advocates. And if the tide is coming in, in fact, all boats do rise. It's when the tide goes out that things look a little different and people start to have some trouble with the idea of that gospel of prosperity. <clears throat> so then in the first chapter of Job, the 11th verse, Satan puts down the dare. He says, put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. Well, that was the dare, and God took it up. And what resulted what is what could be called Job's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Now, there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding behind them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three companies and made a raid upon the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. <clears throat> While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. Now with all of that, and you hear the phrase, the patience of Job, Job's response was, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and 
and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then it got worse. In the second chapter, Satan says, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. God accepted the wager with the one caveat, don't kill him. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with loathsome swords from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job's response, again remarkably, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? But it kept getting worse. And finally, his wife and his three friends turned on him and told him that clearly it was all his fault because they had bought into the formulaic gospel. That if all of this misfortune had come upon him, there was one, only one answer, and that was he brought it on himself. Having addressed the problem of bad things happening to good people, Job finally reached his limits and he turned the tables and started complaining. This is from the 21st chapter of Job. And it's the part of Job that we don't pay nearly enough attention to. We often talk about why do bad things happen to good people. One of the interviews that I did that was published in Dialogue was uh, with Harold Kushner, a rabbi who wrote the book When Bad Things Happen to Good People because he had a son who was born with the rare condition of progeria, where there is accelerated maturation and his son died when he was in his late teens of old age. So Job says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their children are established in their presence and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Now think about the contrast between that and what the Book of Mormon says about how the wicked will be cursed. Their bull breeds without fail their cow calves and does not cast her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. You say God stores up their iniquity for their sons. Let him recompense it to themselves that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. That's quite a complaint from Job. And it's because he'd had enough of the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering, and he wanted to know why. So he went on and made the demand of God. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. 
I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. I cry to thee and thou dost not answer me. I stand and thou dost not heed me. The patience of Job had given out. He wanted now a hearing with the big guy, feeling that if he could plead his case, maybe there would be some answers and maybe some reparations. But here was God's response. This comes from the 38th chapter of Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Have you, have an, arm, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can give you victory. In other words, Job's plea had been, I demand to speak to God face to face. God's answer was, fine, when you get a face, we'll talk. So the answer to the formulaic gospel is there really is no answer. When the rising tide lifts all of the boats, things seem good, but when times get tough, you don't necessarily see that correlation between cause and effect. Now back to Alma, this is chapter 9, verse 28. And this really is where the discussion needs to end within the Book of Mormon, even though it doesn't provide us the answers we would like, nor does Job. Verse 28 says, the time is at hand that all men shall reap a reward of their works, according to that which they have been. If they have been righteous, they shall reap the salvation of their souls according to the power and deliverance of Jesus Christ. And if they have been evil, they shall reap the damnation of their souls according to the power and captivation of the devil. The problem for us is the interval between cause and effect. And for the most part, it's deferred compensation, whether it be rewards for the righteous or punishment for the wicked. If you look carefully at the data and allow the data to drive the discussion, it doesn't sort out in this life. And our only hope is that in the subsequent existence, the equation gets squared and people are rewarded for their good deeds and punished for their bad deeds. In other words, deferred compensation. I'll end with a story from the diary of David O. McKay that deals with deferred compensation, and then we'll have a discussion. In 1958, he visited 
LDS hospital to administer to Adam Benyon, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Benyon had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and was dying. President McKay recorded in his diary what happened after he left Elder Benyon's hospital room. He wrote, the mother of a missionary asked me to go to the room of her son who is dying of cancer and administer to him. I acquiesced to her request and administered to him, following which he asked his father and mother to leave the room while he talked to me. He questioned me as to why he had to suffer such a dreadful affliction. I talked to him for about an hour, explaining among other things that the sufferings of this world are a part of our mortal existence, that this life is so brief compared to the eternities to come. I commended the missionary for his firm testimony of the gospel and told him to put his trust in the Lord and have faith and rest assured that he will adjust all things for his good. Five days later, on Tuesday, February 11, 1958, I learned that this young man had gone to his eternal reward. That's what faith is really all about, and it's something that I miss in the discussions that I see within the Book of Mormon. It's too cut and dried. It's too formulaic. It doesn't carry the nuance that Job carried, and I think it doesn't carry the nuance that Joseph Smith's later theology, a much more developed theology, carried. So with that, let's uh, take some questions from you, Chris. You're moderating this part. Have at it. Uh, questions are whether one, one direction to go is to rethink or reframe what prosperity means. Uh, there are several possibilities to talk about prosperity as not material, but as peace and love or prosperity as a, as a societal, as a, as a happy or successful or caring for each other society, uh, pointing, for example, to fourth Nephi and the, and the life after Christ in, uh, in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, it, it, it sounds good, but what I'm doing is taking the text for what it says, not what we wish it said. And I think if you look candidly, not just at these passages from Alma, but the, at the entire Book of Mormon, it's unconditional, it is literal, it's here and now. It's not the deferred compensation. It's if you're righteous, you'll prosper, and then it chronicles the prosperity, and then the people start to become unrighteous, and the civilization declines, and they get destroyed. So I, I know why people want to put that nuance into it. Uh, and in fact, that's what we do when we exercise faith, is we're saying, all right, we don't get it here now. A equals B doesn't necessarily mean that A equals B in a short frame of time. So um, I'll jump in. And um, some folks on chat are also talking about, in the original context, it seems that um, Prosperity is um, is about the society and not about individuals, but we tend to think about it instead according to an individualistic framework. So um, 
and Margaret Olson Hemming and others have talked a little bit about um, in some of their writing about two kinds and number of people have talked about two kinds of prosperity, kind of community versus individual. And um, maybe you can talk about why we have this tendency to apply this to individuals rather than to think about it on a society level. And does that change how we then think about um, what it is and what it does? So the prosperity gospel, um, if we're thinking about it society-wide, does it do something else than if we're thinking about it in this very narrow individualistic framework? If you're looking at it individually, I think our own experience says it doesn't always work the way we think it should. And if you look around you, you become absolutely convinced of that because it is true. If you look at the entire society, yeah, you could interpret it that way within the Book of Mormon. My reasoning is, regardless of what the Book of Mormon may say, it doesn't jibe with the reality that we live. Whether it's individual or the entire society, the ups and the downs of our society and other societies have very little to do with collective righteousness or wickedness. And that's the rub, because it takes the props from underneath those who would like to say, live a good life because, follow the commandments because. We know there's a reason for doing it, but the reason doesn't hold up if you're looking at the data you have to throw the deferred compensation angle in. And I would say that faith really is inoperative until times get tough. If everything's working according to the formula, you don't need faith. It's smooth sailing. It's when things don't happen the way you thought they would that the test of faith really comes, and it can be brutal. And ultimately, we don't have the answers when things happen like that. When the righteous suffer in particular, it's very painful to us, especially if it's for ourselves or our own families. But as Job said, it's also more than a little galling when you look at the wicked and say, you know, they're the ones who are doing really well and we're suffering. What's going on here, God? And I think Job puts the discussion where it needs to be and that is we just simply don't know and if we think we do, then God will smack us down and say, when you get a face, we'll talk. Another comment or question that, that arises um, speaks to the problem that, occur, that occurs when we do take the A equals B or uh, cause and effect kind of interpretation of, of the prosperity gospel that gets reversed to say if, if somebody is not prospering in however we define prosper, they were, we work backwards, they were unrighteous, they did wrong. Uh, that, of course, uh, that discussion occurs in Job, but uh, would you speak to that? Yeah, and, and there are two ways in which that message gets reversed. The one you just talked about is what Job describes, where his three best friends and his wife all turn on him and conclude that, look, the only reason this could be happening is you screwed up somewhere, so why don't you fess up? And we see that. Uh, it, it was a theme that Jesus touched on, who sinned, this man was born blind, 
And his response was neither one of them did. The other one that I think in a way is much more malignant is to say, because I have prospered, it is proof that I have been righteous. And I see this within the church to an extent that horrifies me, uh, where people have become very materialistic and if they have achieved financial success, they wear that as a badge of their righteousness. And that horrifies me. I think it has nothing to do with it, but I see it and I see it a lot. You see it particularly in the affluent wards and stakes. That, that seems to fit in with a comment that just came through um, about the righteous versus wickedness dichotomy that is so problematic that you're either one or the other and that, and that this formulaic gospel plays into, again, um, like not a real description of the human experience, as you're saying, or of who we are as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. I I am more and more impressed over the years with Judaism and with atheism. Judaism, because it doesn't really cling to the idea of an afterlife, so that what drives righteousness in this life is that it's the right thing to do. Not that I'm going to do it so that I can get a reward. Atheism, I think, carries it even to a more laudable degree because there's a denial even of the existence of God. And yet, many of the most moral, ethical people that I know would consider themselves atheists. Why are they acting out life in that way? It's because there is some force within them that says, this is the way that one should live one's life not because of any expectation of reward here or in an afterlife that they don't even believe exists. Uh, that impresses me because within my own tradition, I see a lot of people who are saying, okay, if I do A, then I will get B, therefore I will do A, because I want that reward. I, I think that's a much lower level of living one's life. And it seems to set us up um, for judgment, to judge other people, right, as well. And not just to judge other people, but the reverse of that can be even more damaging. And that is that how often has the guilt been focused on the individual because of something that happened? Again, getting back to what Job said, that, gee, if I got a blessing and it's this. Think patriarchal blessings. And I didn't have that happen. Then since the person who gave me the blessing was inspired, the only option is that I screwed up. And so the guilt, the self-destructive behavior that can follow that can be really horrible. And in an, in an extreme instance can cause people to take their own lives. We see this within the LGBTQ world a lot because the religion gives them no answer that allows them to deal honestly 
with their own sexuality. So the only answer they have left is, I have screwed up. That's why I am this way. There is no hope for me. And in the extreme case, I will take my own life. That's horrible. But we see it. We see it frequently. Yeah. Um, I was hoping you would maybe even say more about that, the relationship between the, this kind of formulaic gospel um, as you see, as you kind of grappled with um, ideas from the Book of Mormon, um, such as this, and their relationship to the church's history of racism and to um, the church's relationship to LGBTQ plus issues. Um, some well, other things you might want to say about that. It, it turns out that biology not only has something to say, it has the final word. In the case of race, race is an artificial construct. Those of us with fair complected skin are the mutants because the human race began in Africa with dark pigmentation. And as migrations left the middle latitudes and moved to the north where there was less sunlight, then spontaneous mutations which allowed more sunlight to be absorbed and therefore more production of vitamin D happened, that mutation became dominant. So the whole idea of the white race being the master race has it flipped on its head. That we all started as black, that Adam and Eve were black. And if you want to carry it to the logical end point, since we're made in the image of God, fill in the blank. But biology didn't know all of that at the time all of the racist constructs were being put together. This is the result of DNA sequencing and the mapping out, not only of where the migrations were, but when they happened. And being able to work in reverse and say, all right, here's where it began. And this was what race was initially. So the whole idea of race is artificial. And biology could have said that and could have put perhaps a a quicker resolution to the Mormon problem than we actually got, but the biology wasn't there yet. Now, that said, on LGBTQ issues, the biology is here already, and yet we still have leaders who are in total denial of the biology, and in fact will come out publicly and say, you can't trust science. You need to listen to us and disavow what science has to say. The science of homosexuality is complex because what actually should be called non-heterosexuality because homosexuality isn't the only manifestation of that. Uh, it's an array. It's not a single entity. And each position within that array will eventually be shown to have a different biological underpinning. It's not there is a gay gene that explains everything. But biology continues to inform on this, and as it does inform, the progress is going in one direction only, and that is you're born this way. It's not a matter of choice. It's not a matter of bad choice. This is what you are. And rather than condemning that, we need to be celebrating it and allowing people to blossom from wherever they are. Does, is that a better response, Rebecca? Is that what you're hoping for? Uh yeah, I just wanted to get you to talk about it more. 
Um, we, there's another direction that I'd like to bring in. Uh, that is the comments, a number of comments. Of course, there is a, an ongoing push to um, explain or define prosperity in a way that makes sense, but with a, or that fits the data, if you will. But there is at the same time a, an, an acknowledgement or a recognition that we want certainty. We want cause and effect. We want answers. Yep. And you're in effect saying we don't get that. Um, how, how do, uh, this is a, in effect the question to Job. How, how do you deal with that in your life without answers, without certainty? Yeah, I, I can imagine a scenario where God's response to Job was simply grow up. That's the way things are. It doesn't explain why things are that way, but that's the way they are. If you allow data to form the construct of this existence, I think you wind up in a much better place because you're dealing with reality. Joseph Smith gave, I think, as good a definition of truth, which was the subject of the opening song, as we have. And he said, truth is the knowledge of things as they were and as they are and as they will be. It is not as we wish they would have been. You deal with the reality and try to make sense where you can make sense, but in some instances, you're not gonna make sense of it. And this is where faith drops into place. It's, faith gives you, I think, the strength to deal with the ambiguity without giving you the answer. We'd love to have the answer. We'd love to have that certitude it isn't there. Yeah, generally, yeah, the odds are going to favor that if you do A, you're more likely to get B, but it's those outliers that cause a lot of grief, and I can understand that, and I sympathize, and I experience it myself. Either why is this happening to me, or why isn't that happening to me, because I thought I'd filled all the boxes in. The, um, Rebecca, go ahead. Yeah, so, um, you know, maybe going along with part of that, um, there's a comment about how Christians um, and as Latter-day Saints, we um, sometimes focus on the, pow uh, the power of Christ to redeem us and that this is all that really matters um, and it doesn't have so much to do with our actions. Um, how does this position kind of fit with um, the prosperity formula is outlined. Well, one of the other that I see within the Book of Mormon, not as dominant as the formulaic gospel, is that of universal salvation. If you read the Book of Mormon at face value, it says, look, we're all going to be saved, so don't sweat it. Um, we took a big step away from that and continued to be away from that where we peg it more and more to not only is your position in the afterlife commensurate with your actions here, but we've got super VIP heaven. <laughs> Borrow from a, a well-known musical. 
that we have not only three kingdoms, but we have three grades within the highest kingdom. And my hunch is that if Joseph Smith had lived longer, that map would have expanded. I think back- That raises a, that raises a question that comes up. I, I'm sorry if I cut you off, go ahead. Yes. No, um, several times you referred to Joseph Smith's later theological development yeah. or later teachings. Um, could you speak about that more? Uh, there's, there's a lot of interest in, in where he went or where he might have gone. Uh, yeah, I, to me, one of the intriguing things that I haven't seen anything written about, maybe there, but I just haven't seen it, is that not where he went to, but where he went from. He abandoned the Book of Mormon. Once it was out there, that was it. When he preached, he didn't go back and quote the Book of Mormon. He pivoted and went mostly to the New Testament, and within the New Testament, his theology became mostly Pauline theology. And that's the direction that he went towards, but it really is interesting that at a very early time point, he left the Book of Mormon in the, I think, October 1831 General Conference. And when you think of General Conference in those years, you could have put him probably the entire church within a not too large house. Uh, Hiram Smith, and this is in the Far West Record, said, Joseph, why don't you tell us more of the details of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon? And the response in the minutes was essentially, it's none of your business. And that was the end of the discussion. So he did abandon the Book of Mormon in terms of where he got his guideposts for the subsequent theological developments, even though if you trace backwards, you can see some of the starting points within the Book of Mormon. He looked to Pauline theology a lot, but he also looked around him. He looked at, for instance, the theology of Thomas Dick, philosophy of the future state. This is where the work of Rick Grunder is going to be more and more important. And I'm disappointed, but not surprised that the scholars haven't embraced it so far because it's very threatening to where they have lived. Rick, I've known for 50 years. He is a bibliographer and antiquarian book dealer in upstate New York, and he has spent over 40 years going through in great detail American imprints and manuscripts that predate the, life, the death of Joseph Smith, and is pulling out of those what sounds like Mormonism. Uh, and the answer is a lot. Now, one... Uh, pretty graphic example of what he drew upon is Freemasonry. The Book of Mormon can be read as an anti-Masonic document because it goes to great lengths to condemn the secret combinations. Well, at the time the Book of Mormon was being written, the disappearance and death of William Morgan was still a scandal in the area in which Joseph Smith lived. And Joseph later uh, married as a plural wife Morgan's widow. But in his early years, he was caught up in the anti-Masonic sentiment because of the murder of Morgan, who had published an expose of Freemasonry. But when 
the tables were turned on him and John C. Bennett betrayed him and tried to bring the church down in 1842, Joseph had to redraw his inner circle. And in doing so, he encompassed nine men, all of whom were Masons, one being his brother Hiram, who'd been a Mason at that point for over 20 years. Why? Because he knew enough about Masonry that A, he saw some religious content in an organization that claimed it went back to Solomon's temple, and B, because Masons knew how to protect each other. So Masonic lore became incorporated into LDS practice and eventually into LDS doctrine. Until in about 1990, we started to pull it back out because it was a little bit too embarrassing, the parallels between the temple ceremony and the Masonic ceremonies. So it's a long answer to the question, Chris, but yes, he drew upon the Bible, particularly the New Testament, particularly the writings of Paul, but he also was very much immersed in the air and the culture of the time. And I think part of his genius, and it's not a put down on him, it really was part of his genius, was his ability to choose from the symbols around him, be they verbal symbols or visual symbols or cultural symbols, to embody what he intuitively experienced as a prophetic person. To be able to translate the infinite into finite symbols is the most daunting task of the founder of any religious tradition. I think Joseph Smith did that at least as well as anybody we have a record of, and maybe better. But you have to understand that it's the power of the symbol and not the symbol itself that made the difference. And what we have tended to do as a church is to become so stuck in the symbology that Joseph used that even though it's become outdated in many cases, we're afraid to discard it and to pick up new symbols that could breathe new life into the spiritual realities that he was trying to embody earlier. That makes sense? That makes sense to me, and I guess I guess we have to. <laughs> we're the only people with a face here, so uh, um, I, an interesting question. Uh, if we could back up a bit, your 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 argument about the Book of Mormon and about these verses, uh, Alma nine in particular, uh, sounds like uh, an argument that the Book of Mormon is simplistic or primitive or um, not fully developed or, or stereotyped uh, is, that may be unfair, but uh, why would you position the Book of Mormon, uh, you're positioning it as an early work, as, an, as a not fully thought through, or Mormon as the, as the editor, as, as not being very deep, uh, that's uh, different ways to put that. Well, <clears throat> my disclaimer at the front was that I view it as an inspired 19th century document. So that's my starting point. It's not to say anything about whether there was a Mormon or how good a writer or editor he might have been. 
what it represents to me is the earliest marker in the timeline that we have of where Joseph Smith was theologically. So this essentially is, I call it Joseph Smith 1.0. You could also call it Joseph Smith 1828. We don't know where he was theologically at the time of his earlier visions because he didn't write anything then. The earliest account that we have of the first vision is actually embedded in the fourth section of the Doctrine and Covenants. But you have to know what you're looking at when you read it, otherwise you go right past it. If you juxtapose it to the 1832 account, you say, ah, okay, now I get it. This predated by two years, and this is what he was saying about that early visionary experience. So, yeah, you could use all of those descriptors to the Book of Mormon, and I don't have a problem with it as long as we can have the discussion about context, rather than saying, hey, he said this, therefore. No, it, it's an attempt to put our minds around what this book was and what it represents on a timeline of evolution. Joseph was nothing if not an evolutionary thinker. And this was a major problem for many of his followers because they were looking for a restoration of primitive Christianity, which they felt was static. Once we go back and get the old time religion again, we'll be fine and we don't want to move from that. It's good enough for me. But it wasn't good enough for him and he kept going. In 1836, when they dedicated the Kirtland Temple, he said, we're done. We have all the ordinances. We have everything we need now. And within about three days, he forgot all about that and started to go off on a different tangent and never stopped. That's the real challenge of dealing with Joseph Smith, that you really need to put him on his own timeline and say, okay, this is what he said and wrote. When did he say that? And what does that mean in the context of his continuing theological evolution? I haven't seen much of that discussion out there, but I think that's a crucial discussion for us to have. With that in mind, um, maybe you could speak to what you see or imagine the utility of the Book of Mormon having in our day and time. Um, we've tended as a people to focus on this kind of um, prosperity gospel, this cycle of destruction, um, but are there other themes and cycles and message, kind of larger messages that um, can really speak more to our time and help us in our goal to becoming more Christ-like. Folks have talked a little bit about um, the kind of larger picture of what happens when we're all divided by ites, by racism, and the destruction that comes from that. Um, is that a theme or are there some others that, that you can see really helping to move us forward as a people? Uh, let me respond on a couple of levels there. One is we have not been willing to do with the Book of Mormon what we implicitly and sometimes explicitly do with the Old and the New Testaments, and that is ignore the inconveniences. We don't talk much about what Paul said about women in church. It's still there. And if we were to read all of it literally, it would set it would set us aside. Um, but we know that some of those things were conditioned by time and circumstances. Some literalists, this is what fundamentalist Christianity 
tends to do, try to accept everything in the Bible as literal and unchanging. That's an elaborate dance step that I can't do and don't want to try. Uh, if it works for them, fine, but it, it doesn't really hold up. Uh, we've not been willing to accept the same on the Book of Mormon. Whether you accept it as an ancient document or a 19th century document, <clears throat> I think we have to be able to say, okay, some parts of it still ring true to us. Some of it just doesn't ring true. And I think this gospel of prosperity is one of the doesn't ring true parts of it. That's not to say that we throw the thing out. Uh, theologically, what I'd like to see is the scholars embrace it as Joseph Smith 1.0, and then take all of the threads of theology that he developed later with that as the starting point, or to say that these later threads didn't even start until after the Book of Mormon, that's fine too. If you did that, but if you did it one thread at a time, I think you would have a really important and beneficial understanding of the prophetic process, because there it is. It's laid out in black and white in a way to which we have no access with the ancient documents such as the Bible. Here we've got the nitty gritty almost from day one, preserved in print, but I haven't seen that happen yet. You can do the cherry picking. This is what every religious tradition that I've looked at does anyway. They all use the scriptures defensively. What I mean by that is they already decide what they want their position to be. And then they go and cherry pick to defend that position. That's why they're all over the board, but they're referring to the same book as justifying where they are. Uh, that's intellectually dishonest. And I think ultimately it's not very helpful. If you're able to move to a different paradigm, and that is to say, what is the voice of God saying through the centuries as embodied in canon? And how then does that voice affect and guide our actions today? That's a much more difficult question to answer, but that's the question. It's not, hey, can we find a verse that will justify what we want to do or what we've been doing? But we play that game. It drives me nuts. But we're in good company because the other religious traditions, Christian and non, any of the traditions of the book, meaning Islam as well, will do the same thing. What that does is to lock you into a false world, and it has you looking backwards rather than forwards. I had a dear friend, now deceased, who ran for the Senate in 1976 against Orrin Hatch. Jack Carlson, uh, and he lost in the primary, but in the process of campaigning, he paid a courtesy call to Spencer Kimball. And the way his friends told it to me was, he walked into President Kimball's office and started the conversation. And knowing Jack, I could understand that. And he said, President Kimball, this church is like a horse galloping full speed into the 21st century and everybody's sitting on the horse looking backwards. That established credibility and a bond between the two of them that was rather extraordinary. Because here was a guy who was willing to tell it as he saw, not trying to play up to the hierarchy. But I, I think that's what is very difficult with religion is to look forward instead of backwards. The very nature of organized religion is conservative. Conserving what has been passed 
down from the past times. Um, but Chase Peterson, who was president of the University of Utah, in his autobiography said the mission of the university is to embrace or is to preserve the good and promote the better. Religion is very good at preserving, not necessarily preserving the good at times. It's not so good at promoting the better because there is an institutional aversion to change. And yet at the same time, we are the church that says we are the church of continuing revelation. If you were to ask any congregation of Latter-day Saints, all in favor of continuing revelation, raise your hand, all the hands would shoot up. If your next question is, all of you who are comfortable with substantive change, raise your hands. And you'd see a lot of nervous looks. Well, what's the difference between the two? We haven't figured out that there isn't a difference between those. And as a result, we tend to get stuck where we are rather than looking ahead and moving forward. The same can be said about, I think, any institutional religion right now. Within the Judeo-Christian traditions, everybody is stuck. Nobody is able to claim victory right now with the younger generations. They're all losing. And I see that because of my seat on the Board of Governors at Wesley, that I'm talking with the Protestants. I'm talking with the Jews. When I interviewed Rabbi Kushner, he said, we've got as much of a problem retaining our youth as the Mormons do retaining theirs. And we don't know how to fix it. That to me is the overwhelming challenge facing institutional religion right now. How do you preserve enough of the past to keep your relevance, but make it alive for the newer generations so that you can preserve the tradition at all? Otherwise, it eventually goes gray and dies. Yeah. Okay. And, and with that, um, maybe we'll go ahead and wrap up. Just um, one last comment from an attendee um, recognizing that some of this discussion kind of turns uh, Mormonism a bit on its head. Uh, we don't perhaps provide as many answers as we think we do, but, but instead provide fertile ground for deep thinking and figuring out more. Um, and I think that's what, what you're suggesting um, as we kind of rethink the Book of Mormon and its place and, and where we go from here. Well, and, and keeping in mind what I started out saying, that the real issue in my mind with the Book of Mormon is not what it is, it's what it does which often transcends the text. Mm. That tends to get lost in the discussion. And yet that book, more than any other single force in the last 200 years, has changed people's lives permanently and in a benevolent way and brought them into this tradition. You can't throw that away. You don't want to degrade the importance of that. And whatever the discussion is, however heated the dialogue becomes, you got to keep that one in mind. Uh, a comment from me, I guess, although I could, I could tie it to other people's comments. There's a, in, the, in the world of talking about continuing revelation and change, in the church, in, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in any event, there has been a tendency to acknowledge or honor that idea of continuing revelation, but at the same time, 
to encapsulate Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon as permanent, uh, fixed revelation. Um, it takes some creative dance to make that all work. But what you're doing in this conversation and in this lesson is, in, in my view, challenging that practice of the, of the church and the scholars and uh, typical Sunday school lessons of putting the Book of Mormon and things Joseph Smith said in the category of unchangeable, permanent, um, not on a timeline, but timeless. Yeah, I've spent nearly 50 years as a medical researcher. I, I published some pretty good papers early in my career, but I wouldn't want current science to rest on those papers alone. I can give homage to those papers or the papers of my colleagues in whatever subject matter without saying that was the state of the art that we have to remain attached to. That's what I think we need to see within religion is the acknowledgement that, look, this is an evolutionary process and we keep moving forward. We honor the past, but we don't tie ourselves to it. Otherwise, we disable ourselves in our ability to move into that future. Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you to everyone. Thank you to Greg for opening our minds and our hearts and feeding our souls today. Thank you to all of the attendees and for contributing um, uh, your thoughts and your spirit here. Uh, please join us next week uh, for a lesson that will be taught by Dr. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. And our closing prayer today will be offered by Dialogue Board member Ben Park. Our Father in heaven, we're so very grateful for the opportunity we had to gather here on this uh, Sabbath day to uh, study our history and our scripture and discuss the important matters before us. We're grateful for the uh, issues that are raised with the Book of Mormon to allow us to wrestle with the issues of humanity and uh, uh, your divine intervention. Um, we pray that we may take these lessons into our lives and we uh, are grateful for uh, Brother Prince for preparing them. We pray especially at this time that we may be mindful of those who are suffering and those uh, systematic issues around us that we may join together to overcome, that we may make this a more uh, just society and move towards the principles of Zion. Uh, we're grateful for the Dialogue family and all of us who can uh, work together to bring about change and love and support. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>